0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them. Wherever you want is fine. I'm going to cover the whole thing. I'm just kidding. John chapter 6 is the preferred um, page. The title of today's sermon is pulled directly from the text, in my opinion. Hard words, holy words. Um, That'll make more sense, hopefully, at the end. Not, like, difficult to pronounce hard words, but, like, difficult to hear hard words. Hard words. We're going to be talking about that. If you don't have a Bible, we have them in the seats. So you just reach in the Bible or the seat in front of you. Pull that black thing out. It says something like Bible on it. Grab it. Open it up to page 892 if you can. Um, yep, 892. Uh, we're going to be looking at a really tough text today. And when I first, they said, hey, this is the text we're going to be, we're asking you to talk about. And I was like, oh, yes, I love this text. It, it like, means a lot to me. And then I started looking at the text again, and I was like, Really? Like, this is the text you asked me to talk about? I feel like there was a business meeting at some point, and they were all sitting around the table, and they got to this text, and they were like, oh, I don't know if I want to teach this one. Who should we ask? Let's ask the guy who can't say no. Call Tim. And it's like, I'm here now. So um, all that to say, it's a tough text. Um, it's not, like, difficult to read, like I'm saying. It's just, it has, it, it packs a huge punch, like, harder than Colin McGregor punch, like, Right. I'm current, right? I know what happens. Um, All that to say, we've been through a really crazy week, right? Tuesday, everybody's world came screeching to a halt when we found out that Robert Vaughn passed away. (laughs) Yes. Robert Vaughn. If you don't know who he is, just Google Magnificent Seven, right, and you'll be fine. If you don't know who Magnificent Seven is, shame on you. But this is what we're going to be looking at. It's tough, it's difficult, and so I think we should stop and just pray because otherwise I'll keep stalling with bad jokes and nobody, nobody wants that. Father, we come before you um, excited, nervous, worried. Um, Lord, we come before you in our minds saying that we come before you, but in truth, understanding, That you're not a God who's in one specific location, we come to you, but that, God, you are everywhere. And so we come now to this text with this understanding that you are intimate, that you know us, that you love us. Um, God, I just pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear from you, to be changed by you, that you would give us the courage to properly engage with you through the words of Christ. It's in your name we pray. So the first bit of text we're going to look at, it's verses 60 through 65. And yes, I say this every time I'm up here, I am a good Southern Baptist. So I will strive at all times to alliterate all of my points. As you can see, I've done it successfully thus far. They both start with D. Divinity, divinity, discuss. This is a text. If you were here last week, you remember Kevin covered like a million verses about how Christ engages his followers, what he says, why he says, and what that means for us, how we should do the same. Well, all of that to say the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were not keen on the things he was saying. So verse 60 picks up like this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. I think we can all agree, right? Jesus, good, right? Jesus is good. Do we agree? Okay, good. See what I did there? Jesus himself tells us, like, hey, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the model. I am good. We believe that everything good comes from the Father in heaven. Jesus came from the Father in heaven. Jesus is in the Trinity. like He is God. He is the Father in heaven. So Jesus is innately the embodiment of all things good. But just by reading these verses that I've just read, I think we can all also agree, as bad as it is and as hard as it is to say, good is not necessarily easy. Right? Can I get an amen on that? Thank you. From now on, I'm not going to ask you for amens. I'm just going to expect them. So good is not necessarily easy easy, right? The good things in life take work. My boss was in, the last, was in the last sermon, so I really hit this hard. I'm going to hit it a little lighter with you. Um, never take shortcuts, right? Good doesn't mean easy. If it's easy, that probably means you're going to have a lot more work on the back end of everything trying to fix what you probably broke or neglected when you took the easy way out. And as we can see here, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, hearing the words, the teachings of Jesus, say, hey, this isn't easy. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so Jesus, knowing this, that his disciples were grumbling, said to them, you take offense at this? Well, what is this? Right? Some of us are going, this. It's a demonstrative pronoun. That's what this is. Right? I'm the only one Whatever. All right, so this. It's a demonstrative pronoun. But what it's referring to is it's, it's looking back in what Kevin touched last week. It's looking back at some things that Christ said that at first, listen, first, hear, when we first interact with it. And then from then on, it's not easy to deal with. The first thing that Jesus says that I think is really offensive, you find it, it way back in verses 30 through 34. Jesus is talking to them, and he's talking about the difference between like life and eternal life. You come because you saw signs, but uh, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Like you're coming to me for food, not who I am. And they ask him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? Like what work do you perform? As if they hadn't just eaten their fill from practically nothing. And in verse 31, they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Fork up, Jesus, literally. Literally. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread. Jesus, don't miss this, okay? If you just read it like that, it's like, okay, yeah, Jesus said something rude, whatever. But this is the point. Jesus just said, it wasn't Moses. It was me you think Moses is cool, it's me. He literally just told the people whose national identity, their sense of worth, and every high ground they could have in society, that the reason they have all of that is nothing in comparison to Jesus. Right? That's like the story of the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? John Wayne shot Liberty Valance from an alley. The other guy didn't even get his gun out of the holster, but the other guy got all the fame. If you've never seen that movie, shame on you again. You guys are just too young. Um, So, but Thank you, finally. Um, But this is the thing. Everything they've built their life on, everything they've found worth in, Jesus has just said, this pales in comparison to who I am. Imagine yourself. Everything you found worth in, everything you've built your life on, your identity, who you are. And Jesus says, worthless, doesn't compare to who I am. It's good that he says that. It's good that we believe it and that we hold to it. But, guys, it's not easy. It's not easy to continually die to yourself every day. And then the next thing Jesus says, another aspect of this, which is difficult for us to to wrap our heads around, saints have argued about this for centuries, is this idea that God will save who he chooses and them alone. You thought we might talk about election today. Well, here it is, but it's not the election you thought, huh? It's one that's far more important than eternal. Jesus says, in verses 35 through 41. They said, hey, give us this bread, always. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Here we go. This is expensive talk. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then as you see in 65 too, the text we're looking at today, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Yeah, okay, now let me tackle this giant issue. Everybody's tense. We need resolution. We know that because we were here a couple of weeks ago, and we listened to the music, and so we know that every good song comes to resolution. So I've created the tension. Let me give us resolution, okay? Is it election? Is it that God predestines people to be saved? Or is it free will? Man chooses salvation. Yes. Right? Right? J.I. Packer, in this wonderful book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, even in the preface, you don't have to read the whole book to get what he's telling you, even in the preface, he just says, guys, this is an antinomy, which just means both of them are true. Just because you can't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. But have fun wrestling with that. <laughs> just unheave that onto all of you. So, ha, ha. All right. Number three, the third difficult thing that Jesus teaches these people who know starvation, who know thirst, who understand that bread is life, who understand what they need to survive, who have kids they no longer want to see hungry. They said, give us this bread always that we may eat our fill. You're better than Moses. That's cool. I'm fine with that. You probably bake better than him too. Probably better bread. And he looks at them and he says, I am the bread of life. It's in me that you're going to find life. It's in me that you're going to find sustenance. All right, so that's the introduction. Let's get into the actual text now. So when many of his disciples heard it, they said, hey, this is hard. Who can even listen to it? Who can obey this? This is repulsive. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see me, the Son of Man, ascending to where I, he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. And Jesus knew who wouldn't believe and who was even going to betray him. This is tough, okay? Okay. We don't earn salvation. That should have had a huge amen, right? For Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. How do we even have faith that saves? Well, by the grace of God. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we all know if we were good enough to earn salvation, we would lose it immediately because then we would boast that we were good enough to earn salvation, well, why? Why have we been saved? Why has God given us this grace-filled, love-fueled gift of faith that saves? Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he created beforehand that we might walk in them. Do you see who did all the doing in that? God. The flesh Is no good. The only thing flesh brings to the table for salvation is the need for salvation. It's not by anything that we do. Jesus says very clearly, you can't earn heaven. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh, no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew who would and who didn't and why and who would betray him. And then he just closes it with this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the father. These people are coming with motives of good motives, I would even think. These people are coming. Feed my children. I'm tired of seeing my children gaunt and hollow from, and malnourished. Feed me. I'm tired. Feed, Heal me. I want to walk. Heal my family. Bring us all back together. Help me kick this addiction. But guys, we don't go to Jesus to get things like that. We go to Jesus to find life. He's the source of life. So we have these hard sayings, right? Jesus teaches all these hard things, and they come to him and they say, hey, this is hard. Who can even listen to this? Who could even obey this? And he just, he says, hey, I'm doubling down. And he doesn't back off. He doesn't say, you know what? You're right. I got carried away. I apologize. This was just one time I ran my mouth way too much. Didn't realize people were listening. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. No, he doubles down. And this is why, right? Pro tip. This is going to help you with life. I promise. God is God because he's God. Right? Drop the mic. Leave the stage. Get strangled by Brian because I just broke something really expensive. But... This is the point. Jesus doesn't back down to get followers. Jesus has ultimate confidence that the Father will bring people to him and that the people who God wants to stay will stay. You see, God is God not if the Cubs win the World Series, God is not simply God if your family gets back together. God is not God simply if your political candidate wins the presidential election. God is not God if finally rain comes to California and we can all stop stealing it from Northern California, right? I'm from Northern California, I can say that. Give us back our water. But God is God because he is God. That realization alone just has so much weight to it. He doesn't need you to still be God. He's God, and you need him because he's God. So we have all this flow moving toward this one moment, this one kind of watershed moment in Jesus' ministry, this one kind of turning point, literally, for his disciples. In verse 66, we watch the disciples desert Jesus. They come to him, they say this is hard, and he doubles down. And then in 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Just let that sink in. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's interesting because if you go to Jesus and you say something like, what you said, it's too hard. I can't do this. You need to backtrack. Make it easier. Jesus rarely goes, you're right. Let me, let me dumb it down for you. Let me lower the bar. He doesn't do that. When you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, it's too hard. What you're asking me to do is too big. I'm just one person. He goes, I know. Press in. Go harder. Lean deeper. Hold tighter. It's worth it. His disciples desert. This is going to be a running theme through this entire text, so let's just get out of the way. Jesus offends, and it's never by accident there's a reason we call him the rock of offense. Not offensive rock like Creed, okay? The rock of offense. It's not rock. It's offensive, All right? Sorry. Jesus <laughs> offends. This is what we need to understand. Jesus doesn't go around like a long-haired hippie floating. You know, he's not that serda memory foam pillow that you just love to squeeze. Like, Jesus is hard. We go hard, yo, right? Like, Jesus has no chill, Okay? Jesus is God because Jesus is God. And he operates in the full knowledge of that truth. And that gives such confidence. Imagine being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, operating in the full knowledge of, you know what? I worship him and I do what he tells me to do because he's God. Not if I get anything out of it. And he'll, he's worth it. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Hey, my body's wasting away. I'm getting beat up. But everything, hard thing I go through in the name of Jesus pales in comparison to the glory I'm going to get to be a part of when I get to heaven. I'll suffer, and I'll do it well. I'm going to run that race. I'm going to finish that race because it's worth it. I'm going to get that crown just so I can throw it at his feet. But we need to understand Jesus offended then. He's offended ever since then, and he still to this day offends, and he will continue offending. And so if you align yourself with Jesus... Don't be surprised if somebody gets offended. Jesus offends. More on that later. The next couple of verses, yes, it's not fully alliterated, I know, but it's okay because I pulled it from Phantom of the Opera, alright? Past the point of no return. We have passed the point of no return. Alright, after you Google Magnificent Seven, Google Phantom of the Opera. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you not only have the the words of life, you are the Holy One the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ of God. We've literally passed the point of no return. There's there's no turning back. This question of desire, do you want to leave, is met with an answer of understanding. Where are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the one promised since the garden. Why would we leave? Funny story. Uh, my wife and I went with high school students from the youth group to a thing called winter camp last January, and it was epic, and it was great. I would do it again. And it was fun. I just like sleep. Like, I'm the guy who wants to be in bed at, like, 8 o'clock. Like, that's a victory. That's not, and I'm talking, like, 8 o'clock at night. Like, when the sun goes down, I'm like, all right, time for bed. Let's go. But... Um, we go, and we're staying up late, and it's fun, and it's great, and we're connecting with these students, and God love them. I do. Don't tell them I said that. They don't know. And, um, but there's this thing at Forest Home called the Giant Swing or something like that. I see nods. Yeah. It, there's, there's a creek, and then there's like a 25, 30-foot cliff. I don't know. I'm looking at the person I'm about to tell a story about. And um, then there's like telephone poles, which make a swing, And you literally have to climb a ladder to get in and there's like carabiners and climbing harnesses involved in this and you like link into the swing. And then they have a, like a winch that pulls you back, like another 25 feet. And then they make you reach up and release it. So then you're signing your own death warrant. But, um, so the line is long. It takes a long time to get everything set up and get them through, and some of the students wanted to do it, and then I had to go to a meeting, darn. But it took like 45 minutes to get through this line. And we get into it, or I don't. I, we, because two became one, we're married, but she, my wife gets into it with another student, and the second like they clip in, Rebecca's like, no, 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 no. Let me down, let me down. I can't do this, I can't do this. Let me out, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, I want to do this. And the girl, like down at the bottom, is like, "Oh, you want out? You don't want to do this?" And Molly's like, "Nope, she's fine. She's gonna do it, right?" And so Rebecca, the whole time, like, they're ting, 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 and they're going up. Rebecca's, ah, 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 I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Let me down, let me down, let me down. And Molly's going, "Shut up, you'll be fine." I don't know if she said shut up. I was at a meeting eating cookies. But this whole, this whole scene unfolds, and eventually they get up, and ain't no way Rebecca, white knuckle the, in the pole, is going to let go to sign her life away. So my wife has to reach up and pulls the thing, gets it one go, boom, nails it. Right? Nobody died. It was fine. But they get off, and then Rebecca's like, I want to do the zip line. like, Okay? Rebecca, who had just been freaking out, right? Insight. My wife is deathly afraid of heights. Like, if she was standing on the speaker, she'd be freaking out. But the reason she made Rebecca do that was because they'd pass the point of no return. Like, I'm not standing in line for 45 minutes for you to chicken out when we're locked in. Like, we're doing this, right? Like, so all that... All right, yeah, so the point of no return, I'm sorry, I want to tell another story about me now to try and make myself feel less guilty for telling that story. Um, But no, the point of no return, if you're wondering, for following Christ, is when you meet Christ. The point of no return, when it comes to following Christ, is when you truly meet Christ. Christ. And you come to the realization, oh my gosh, you are God because you are God. You are where I go to find life, not solutions to issues in life. The truth of who you are is offensive, but it's still truth. And I have to live my life in light of that. Because you see, the point of the Christian life is not comfort, it's not wealth. It's not fame. It's not popularity. It's not friends. It's not family. It's not esteem. It's not respect. It's not ease. It's not a good retirement. The point of the Christian life is Christ and nothing less. One, one verse that is like, it's my life verse. I live by this, or I strive to live by this. Um, it's a work in process. Just ask my wife is Galatians 1, verse 10. This is the mentality that I wish every Christian could hold. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now let me read it the way it's actually written. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. The Greek word that we translate to servant actually means slave. Somebody who has willingly given their life to serve somebody else. Somebody who has said, hey, I have a huge debt. I can never repay you. Can I work in your household? Will you become my owner? And a Christian is somebody who comes to Christ and says, hey, I've made an enormous debt. I can never repay you. Can I become a part of your household and serve you forever? You see, the point of the Christian life is Christ. We move on now. Peter, I love how Peter is always the one who messes it up verbally, but then just gets it right, right? Like in Major League Baseball, he's that guy who strikes out a bunch, but man, he's clutch. If he makes connection, kiss it goodbye. Like that's Peter. I just love the way, when he can finally get his foot out of his, or yeah, his foot out of his mouth from the last thing he said, he just comes in with something really good. Where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the anointed one, the holy one of God. And now we see that instead of the crew following Jesus, Christ chose the crew. Starting in verse 70, he says this, "'Jesus answered him, "'Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil?' I think we can all agree he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus chose the twelve. Right? Jesus chose Judas. Out of love, Jesus had a plan for Judas. Out of love, Jesus had an agenda for Judas. Judas may have had his own plan. I think we can all agree he did. I'd bet like 30 pieces of silver that he had a plan. But regardless of his plan, Jesus' plan was still achieved. No matter how close you think you might be to Jesus, or you might think others think you are to Jesus... If you're not pursuing his agenda, his plan for your life, you're not pursuing Christ. Jesus Christ chose the crew because Jesus has the agenda. When it comes down to your relationship with Christ, the only one allowed to have an agenda in this relationship is Jesus Jesus has the agenda. Jesus chose the twelve. Jesus chooses today. The only person allowed to have the choice and the agenda and the plan is Jesus. That is offensive. That is not easy to grasp and appreciate. But that is truth. And that is is good because that is Jesus. And he's God because he's God. So what? I always try and have a so what because otherwise there's really nothing. Where does the rubber meet the road? This is all good. Hopefully we've all been convicted. It's not just been me. But we have to ask ourselves questions too when it comes time to engage scripture So the first question is one of our motives. Why are you in church? Why would you say you're seeking Jesus? Is it one of these, I'll follow Jesus if, or is it one of these, I realize I am broke in spirit, and I mourn that, and I realize that the only source of that is Christ and Christ alone. And so I hunger and thirst like I can't hunger and thirst for anything else. Like I will die if I don't get more Jesus. And only Jesus satisfies. So why are you seeking Jesus? Second, if you are a follower of Jesus, whose agenda are you submitting to? And here's a little, here's a little help in figuring out the agenda when you look at God's plan for your life, does it unsettle you? Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it make you want to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is hard. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to move from this. I don't want to make this sacrifice. This is hard. Who can obey it? This is overwhelming. Because if it's not overwhelming... I submit humbly that you don't fully understand God's plan for your life. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you are good. Lord, we trust that you only speak truth and that you don't exaggerate. Lord, we ask that you would give us boldness to truly examine ourselves. Lord, search us and know us. Reveal to us who we are and who you've called us to be. May you not simply overwhelm us with the size of your calling and demands on our life, but would you overwhelm us just as equally with your presence and power to achieve it. It's in your name we pray.